you're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. If you were to make a list of the things that you'd like to change about yourself, what would be at the top of the list? Now, I'm not asking for your spouse's list. I'm asking for your list. If you were to put together a list of the things you'd like to change about you, what would be at the top of the list? Are you addicted to food? Maybe something like late night snacking? Or maybe it's perhaps more serious. Do you hate yourself? Do you have narcissistic tendencies? Does all your relationships tend to frazzle over time? Over the next few moments, I want to share with you and look with you how the Bible calls upon a Christian to be a changed person. That's been diluted in our culture. But the Bible calls upon a Christian to be a changed person. The Bible calls upon each and every person who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to have a distinct life. Jesus called upon his followers to be a light set upon a hill, to be the light of the world. So for the next few moments, I want to clear up some confusion with you who are here and those of you who are watching along a line. Talk about some of the confusion that comes with the change that Jesus referred to as being a light shining on a hill. Jesus again said we're supposed to be different, and yet there's confusion. Look with me at two areas of confusion, beginning in verse 17. The Bible again says, now I say this in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentiles could be referred to as non-believers there. Has little to do with ethnicity, one's race, whether you're Jewish or not, really has to do with whether you are a believer. Have nothing to do with the way in which a non-believer is acting. Again, there should be this sharp distinction the Bible teaches, a sharp distinction, not perfection, but a sharp distinction in how the attitudes and behavior when you compare a believer to an unbeliever. And this can be really surface level uh, illustrated. We watch HGTV before and after. We're all about tricking up kitchens and bathrooms and houses and the before and the after. And we watch plenty of those shows in the Mays household, more than our share, right? I always think if you could fast forward to the very end, you'd essentially get everything you need out of that TV show in the last two to three minutes, right? A before and after, or a radical diet program where I weighed this much and now weigh this much. The before, maybe my pants would have enough room in them for two people. Now, after, very, very different through a diet program, through exercise. Just as in dieting and just as in changing one's house, the believer is to have an after and before story. Every believer should have a before and after story with a contrasting before and after, like a fixer-upper home, like a radical diet. And after you convert to Christianity, the Bible says your behavior should change, your attitude should change when you embrace Christ by faith. And yet, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion. Let me show you two areas of confusion when it comes to this idea of change when it comes to Christianity. First. The first area of confusion is this. I have to change before I, before I become a believer. A lot of people believe that 
if you're going to become a believer in Jesus Christ, get religious, get all that kind of stuff, then you need to change beforehand. The idea that if I'm going to change and the, the change, then the change needs to happen before I walk through the door called Christianity. Of course, some of the world's most prolific religions, prominent religions, talk about a change and a changed life. And essentially, every world religion has the same message. You're made okay with God by your behavior. So clean up your behavior, quit your cussing, quit your cheating, quit your stealing, quit your lying, and then you come to God and God will accept you. And again, the confusion is to get inside the entrance of Christianity, you've got to change. But look again in verse 17, the very first word, the little word now. Now, the Bible says, now, now you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. Circle that word now, because the sequence is so critical. And what's been shared numerous times, I share again with you. Would you consider cleaning up a fish before you catch it? You never clean a fish before you catch it, right? In order to clean the fish, you must first catch the fish. If you didn't answer that question, they only get harder this morning. You may <laughs> take all advantage of that. You never clean a fish before you catch it. And you must come inside and experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you change. Again, the simple idea, can I clean a catch before catching the catch? And the Bible teaches you change after your conversion. When you convert to Christ, you experience the grace of the Lord Jesus. You are equipped with the Holy Spirit inside you. And the Holy Spirit does something remarkable. Like a fire extinguisher, it is a sin extinguisher. Several months ago now, we had our freeze, if you remember that. And in our home, I had it all worked out. My wife sanctioned it. We had a generator that my dad had left me. And I'm not the most mechanical person in the world, right? And so I had the fuel, had it all worked out. And the generator, about two o'clock in the morning to keep the power, remember there's no lights, nothing was happening during that week. My sons and I, we were filling up the generator about two o'clock in the morning. Some fuel was spilling out, but no big deal. It's spilling out on snow, spilling out on the ground. Five minutes after I walked back inside, I looked back out the back door, near where we have the trash can, near the back fence, and all of a sudden, I see smoke at two o'clock in the morning. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. Should you be able to see anything at two o'clock in the morning? <laughs> the fuel that had gone outside the generator had created a fire, and we quickly went to work. Only the problem was that one lone fire extinguisher inside the house had no extinguisher inside of it, right? So we got it out. Now, as a fire extinguisher extinguishes flames, the Bible says when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is inside you. Romans chapter 8. You are given the Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion. And the Spirit of God is a sin extinguisher. Just as a fire extinguisher extinguishes flames, the Spirit of God inside a believer is to extinguish sin. You are to have an ethical change. Again, when you come to faith in Christ, there should be a contrasting before and after story, as if I lost 50 pounds or if I lost 100 pounds. And once you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, there's this radical change 
because the Spirit of God is inside you. You have the ability now to fight your addictions. You have the ability because the Spirit of God is inside you. So the first area of confusion when it comes to this change is that some people believe that I changed before. And you don't change before, you change as a result of knowing Christ. Here's the second area of confusion, embedded in verse 17. The second area of confusion. Second is, I don't need to change my behavior. Now that I'm a believer in this whole thing about the grace of God, I don't need to change. Some hear this message of the grace of Jesus Christ, that Christ will take anyone, and they'll say to themselves, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter who I cheat, doesn't matter who I steal and who I lie with. I can say whatever I want and do whatever I want because God will change me. One of the most prevalent views of God in the contemporary American culture is that he is a benevolent, nice being with a long flowing beard, like in a rocking chair outside of Cracker Barrel someplace. And he's just rocking there and God's job is to be nice. One of the most memorable stories I remember from a New Testament commentator by the name of Donald A. Carson. Carson said he was in Germany as a student. And there in Germany, he was with an engineering student from West Africa. The two had been there long enough. They'd been eating lunches together as common students. And he noticed that the engineering student would go to the red light district. The engineering student had a wife she was a medical student in London, but she was away there studying. He was in Germany studying. And so once, maybe twice a week, he would go to the red light district and take care of his sexual needs. And that's when Carson, after a while, they said, he got to know him. He said, I don't mean to be intrusive, but let me ask you this question. If your wife in London were to do the same thing you're doing, what would your reaction be? And the engineering student from Africa said, I'd kill her. He said, I'd just kill her. That's when Carson brought up, he said, isn't that a bit of a double standard? He said, but you understand, in my culture, it's an honor culture, it's a shame-honor culture. And for her to do that to the man, I'd just wipe her out. He said, that's when Carson said, the Christian, he said, but you've told me you grew up in a missionary school. You grew up believing the Bible. You were taught the Bible. You know the God of the Bible doesn't grade men and women different on a curve. And that's when this man said what I believe is one of the most prevalent views even in America. He said, quote, God is good. He is bound to forgive us. That's his job. I wouldn't trust that this man's a genuine believer any more than I would trust if you sold me oceanfront property in Fort Worth, Texas. I wouldn't trust his Christianity any more than I would trust me landing a 777 safely on the tarmac of DFW. His view is skewed, and yet his view is wildly popular in American churches, wildly popular among American television churches. It's this idea that God is nice and he forgives, and you can just go do whatever you want to do. But this is a corrupted way of thinking. There's confusion. The idea that my behavior doesn't matter after I come to faith in Christ, and this idea that I must change my behavior before I embrace Jesus Christ. Again, a genuine believer is to have a contrasting before and after story, like a radical diet program, like a HGTV kind of before and after of a house. And the Bible says here in verse 17, now I say this in testifying the Lord. 
that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, no longer walk as a non-believer. That word, that word right there that you'll see in verse 17, testify, could be this word. It could be the word insist. The Bible is insisting that there be the removal of confusion, that when you and I embrace Christ, there's this radical change that happens, something powerful. But the challenge in America is that Christianity is so diluted that the outside world does not see the contrasting before and after. They see Christians doing the same things that non-Christians do. James is a pastor and James had a dilemma. He had his high school reunion, the possibility of going. He didn't really want to go, but the man who was organizing the high school reunion was the man who led James to faith in Christ. He was his spiritual mentor. And the reason James was considering going is because his spiritual mentor, the man who led him to faith in Christ and led so many people to faith in Christ, had totally left the faith, totally walked out. By James's own testimony and by numerous accounts, this man had done so many things that was beyond mentioning. James was thinking to go back to the reunion for the one opportunity to talk to this man. Now think about that for just a second. A guy like that, walking with the Lord, leading people to faith in Christ, and then turning his back, renouncing Jesus Christ in the church, how much confusion would this kind of guy cause? No wonder Jesus taught a parable about there being tares in the same field as wheat, and there was a great deal of confusion in the kingdom. And so we have to look at our own selves and ask ourselves, how much confusion would it cause when I act this way and have this attitude this way? Again, verse 17, the Bible says, I say in testifying the Lord. Your Bible is insisting that there's a contrasting before and after. In fact, look at verse 22. The Bible circles back and says essentially the same thing. It says to put off your old self, verse 22, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self. To put off the old and put on the new. Once you've embraced Jesus Christ, you don't clean your life up to come to Christ. But once you've experienced his grace, and I care not what you've done before that, he will wash you clean, white as snow. And at that moment, there is to be an attitude change, a behavior change. So let me ask you a personal question. I'm not asking your spouse, I'm not asking your children, I'm asking you. Have you put off the old self? The majority of you in here, maybe a lot of you are up at eight o'clock watching a sermon. I wouldn't think that there's a lot of non-believers wanting to do that. Let me ask you a personal question. Let me meddle. Have you put off your old self? Let me, let me go but one step beyond if I spoke to the people closest to you, the people who cubicle next to you, the people who pick up a wrench right alongside you at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, if I put up and speak to the people who are your family, your parents, your children, your spouse, would they say, yeah, there's a change. He's put on, she's put on the new self. They meant put it that way. Nobody talks that way, only the Bible talks that way. But you and I get it, right? Again, there's to be this contrasting before and after. Now, do we all struggle with sins? 
Do your head this way. Do a bobblehead with me. Absolutely. The Puritans talked about a besetting sin, a sin that is your favorite sin. It's your go-to sin. But again, the Spirit of God is a sin extinguisher. And you walk in with Jesus Christ with sin. You're not going to be perfect this side of, of heaven. But the Lord Jesus comes into you, and you begin to work on yourself. You put the, the real work in. Two areas of confusion. Look with me, what I'm calling, secondly, my former life. Now, continuing at the end of verse 17, end of verse 18 is something really remarkable. There's four phrases here to describe a pre-Christian, a person who's yet to embrace Jesus Christ or those who haven't. Again, verse 17, in the futility of their minds, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. Again, every genuine believer have this contrasting before and after. Doesn't mean your conversion is dramatic. Doesn't mean that you are a gang member. Doesn't mean that you even cried at your conversion. Graham, if you remember the great Billy Graham, said the moment he came to faith in Christ, lots of people were weeping around him. And he was probably a pretty moral person prior to coming to faith in Christ in his home. And yet there was something dramatic that happened in his life. The Spirit of God entered into Billy Graham's life, and the Spirit of God enters in you. It's this before and after picture. And the Bible uses four phrases here to describe the life of a non-believer. The first word, futility, verse 17. You could write above the word futility the word meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. Right above the word, verse 17, futility, meaninglessness. You've got a whole book in your Bible dedicated to futility, dedicated to meaninglessness. Many of you are studying at Bible fellowship groups. It is the book called what? Ecclesiastes, 18 people know, praise God. Ecclesiastes is a book that Solomon wrote to say, I've tried it all. I did everything. And it was meaninglessness, meaninglessness. The Bible is describing a life without Jesus Christ as a meaningless life. The Bible says you're futile in your thinking. What is a meaningless knife? You know, DFW Airport's got some great restaurants. DFW Airport has got some great bookstores. But what if I told you that about once a week, maybe twice a week, I go to DFW Airport with no place to go, and I just go hang out to see what kind of magazines are out, what kind of books I need to purchase. Tracy and I go on a date out there, and we just eat at DFW Airport. Yeah, you'd find one of those special jackets for me, wouldn't you, right? The kind with the different sleeves. You don't go to DFW Airport to eat and for the periodicals. You go there because you're traveling someplace else. They're nice little pieces to make the travel a little bit more entertaining, a little bit more nice. Going to DFW Airport, for any other reason, the travel is futile. It's meaninglessness. Doesn't have meaning. Essentially, verse 17, he says, look at this. The life without Christ is futile. Now, you may think that's an aggressive term, but we're going to see in the moments to come, he's going to give four phrases. Here's the second phrase. They're, they're, in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. The Bible is not calling a non-Christian stupid, not by any means. They're highly intelligent. It means that their moral compass, the moral their moral compass, their moral reasoning is off kilter. It lacks sufficient light. It's not as if they don't know what is right and what is wrong. They lack a sufficient want to. 
In fact, I'm reminded of a husband and wife who came home, being gone all day to the mall, came back, back when we had answering machines, the button was flashing. He pressed play, his wife, Janet, her good friend, was leaving a message for them. Janet left this kind of message. She said, hey, I need a character reference today. I had a job interview, needed a character reference, and I couldn't find you guys, but I did give them your name, Janet. And so there was a form to fill out. Again, I needed a character reference, form to fill out, couldn't find you, so I forged your signature. (laughs) She needed a character reference. The Bible (laughs) describes that prior to Christ, prior to the Spirit of God, that we are in a moral compass and it's off kilter. Our north is not pointing to the right direction. Again, you may think the Bible is overstating it. Let me just, I ripped these from the headlines this week. These come from just this week's headlines. Recent surveys said that of the female workers at restaurants, 70% of females experience sexual harassment while working at restaurants, 70%. Another survey said that on a weekly basis, 50% experience sexual harassment. Did you hear about the Norway Olympic women's beach handball team? I didn't know there was such a thing. The Norway beach handball team, they were fined this week because the women put shorts on like men. They didn't wear their bikinis and they were fined substantially. The Bible says we need another sexual revolution to reverse the first one. Or did you hear about what happened in Nigeria recently? Nigeria, which is rampant for kidnappings, the man was delivering 70-something thousand dollars of ransom to the kidnappers, and the kidnappers kidnapped the ransom guy so that the 130-something children could not be rescued after having been kidnapped. The Bible says our moral compass until Christ moves into our life. Verse 19, the Bible describes it this way. They've been ca- become callous. They've been given themselves to sensuality. 70% again, females have experienced sexual harassment. It's verifying the Bible, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Our moral sensibility is off. Well, pastor, you just ripped headlines from the extreme, really? Why do we compete with one another and not cooperate with one another? Why are you and I so prone to envy and revenge? Why is reconciliation so rare? Why are people motivated in our day and time for mass shootings? Officer came in today, I hope you'll thank this gentleman. It was his first time with us today, our police officer. He said, what's my responsibilities here today? I said, primarily that we would not end up being like every other church, the Wedgwoods and the one out west. That's why you're here today. Be prominent, be seen. Why am I not inwardly content when I accomplish my goals and my dreams? No, we're not blank slates at birth. We're not Pavlov's dogs, and we're not, as John Locke says, a blank slate. The Bible says my moral compass is off. Perhaps one of the greatest ways to to see this is what Pastor Tim Keller says about a New York City cop, a friend to Keller, the retired Presbyterian pastor in Manhattan. The New York City cop says, He'd served on the force about 10 years, and you'd be handed lots and lots of money in New York City as a cop. It would work this way. You would exit your patrol car. You would go into an establishment. As you came back, there'd be an envelope full of money and a note 
to not be at a certain section, an intersection between two streets. Avoid this place. Here's 50 bucks. Just stay away from the corner of so-and-so and so-and-so. He said this kind of thing would go on all the time because of sex trafficking and victimless crimes. So victimless crimes, an officer would take the money, but if it's a victim crime like drugs, he wouldn't take the money. That's how the ethical norms of a 10-year-old cop of New York City would say. And then this man comes to faith in Christ, this New York City officer, and he's got a dilemma because the guy riding his car hadn't had a moral reckoning. He hadn't had to come to Jesus' meeting. He's still taking the money, and what happens to the cop that refuses the money? Everybody in the precinct is going to be suspicious of that dude. It's a powerful story, isn't it? And it tells us what's wrong with us. It tells us what's wrong. The Bible says we're darkened in our understanding. Listen carefully. Lots of science, lots of psychology, lots of psychiatry can tell us what's wrong. They can diagnose with what's wrong with us. Only the gospel can say, here's the power to change. Only the gospel can say, here's where you need to go, and here's the power to get there. Paul's layering up word after word. He says we're futile in our thinking, we're darkened in our thinking. Here, verse 18, alienated from the life of God. That is, God's life and our life have nothing to do with one another. Again, Pastor, I think this is being a bit over, it's overstepping here. I know a lot of of non-believers, a lot of good people. A 1996 University of Virginia study asked 147 people between the ages of 18 and 71 to keep a diary of their falsehoods. What if I ask you to do that? To keep a diary of your falsehoods at the end of the day, just write down where and what kind of lies and deception you used. Those 147 people, many of them might say, I'm fine. I'll call you. No, you don't look that fat in those jeans, right? (laughs) Husbands, just stare right here. Don't look anywhere else. Now, look, this study of 147 people discovered that once or twice a day, the majority of those 147 people lie. They lie as often as they get snacks of the refrigerator. They lie as often as they brush their teeth daily. Both men and women in the study lie about one-fifth of all their social exchanges. And over the course of the week, about 30% of their relationships and interactions were deception. Interesting, the study found that college students lie to their mothers about one of every two conversations. We're going to have a conversation about that when I get home today. (laughs) Here's the the fourth phrase. The Bible says at the end of verse 18, due to their hardness of hearts. Their hardness of hearts. Again, Paul's just layering up deception, futility, meaninglessness, hardness of heart. That word in its original Greek was described something that's harder than marble. It would often describe something that is petrified, petrified. In Arizona, there is the natural, the national petrified forest. If you want to see my family make fun of their father, their husband, ask the time when I took them to the national petrified forest, they petrified me for doing it. I found it interesting. But think of that. The Bible says that outside the influence of the Spirit, outside the influence of Jesus Christ and embracing him by faith, the heart becomes hard. A doctor may say to you, you have the hardening of your arteries. There's not a softness. The book of Ezekiel, prophetic 
Centuries before Jesus Christ, Ezekiel predicted this, I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone, the Bible says, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, so they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I've often thought of the last 20 years as pastor, Lord, is that really true of me and the people I pastor? That your law is not an external thing, it's an internal thing. And I gravitate toward doing your word. The psalmist would say in the longest psalm, I have a desire, I have a longing to do your word. I have a passion for it. The Bible's layering up this former life. And like a radical diet program, there's to be a contrasting before and after picture to a believer. Like a radical home that's been totally refitted, kitchen, bedrooms, living room the before and after. And the Bible says here something powerful has happened. These four phrases, verse 17, futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, and hardness of heart. And just for good measure, Paul will add this. There's ignorance in them. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. There are really two kinds of people in this world. Some people say, if you want to change like I'm describing, just go change. Put the work in. Just go change. They don't need a bloody cross. They don't need the Spirit of God. They don't need a Bible. Just get after it. And anybody who's tried that, tried to defeat an addiction, knows that you can't do it. Almost every AA, NA, all those AA programs will begin with an acknowledgement of a creator of a God of some kind. Why is that? Because you don't have the inherent power. You don't have the horsepower. You're a little Geo Metro, and you think that you're a Ford, you know, diesel engine. You don't have the horsepower to defeat the sinfulness of your life. The second kind of person in the room recognizes who they are, embraces Christ by faith. And then when you do that, it's not automatic. You begin to put the work in. Have you begun to put the work in? Or are you one of those, like that guy that was running the reunion committee, that's just ruining the name of Jesus Christ? Is your ethical choices, what you eat, what you drink, how you do business, your honesty, your kindness, is it pulling people and attracting people to Jesus? Was it pushing them away? Every other ism, every other scientism, psychologyism, psychiatryism can tell you maybe what's wrong with you. Only a bloody cross can give you the power to change. Jesus died to make you honest. He, made, he died to make you clean. He died to make you kind. Today, have you embraced Christ by faith? And then, put your eyes right here for just a second. Have you put the work in after you've come to faith in Jesus Christ to change your tendencies? Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.